Thank you so much. I'm just going to do a bit of gardening on the stage. Hope you guys are doing well. It's 1st of December. You're officially allowed to put up your tree. Anyone else putting up the Christmas tree today? We are. Yeah, we're going to get Michael Bublé out. We're going to get the decorations out of the sheds. We're going to go, we're going to have eggnog. We're going to do the whole thing. So it's going to be brilliant. So really good Good morning to you. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming. And uh, just before we get into the Word of God today, just a quick bit of uh, family news. And uh, many of you will know, if you've been around the last few weeks and months, that we uh, have been talking about our desire to find a second location uh, for the King's Arms to meet on a Sunday morning. And it's not because we don't love this location, but it's because we are growing to the point where actually we don't have loads of extra room for new people. And so we felt God speaking to us about trying to create space for growth, uh, both in terms of people to find Christ, that they've got room with us to actually come be part of the family, but also for new leaders to kind of emerge from within our church. And so we've been on this journey of looking for a second location, And to be honest, it's been a bit of a struggle, a bit of a grind. It's been hard to find a location, but I have some good news for you this morning. You can do a drum roll on your seat if you want to. Um, We have, praise the Lord, we've secured the university as a second site for us. Um, And uh, we are going to be in the new year, probably around March time, one Sunday in March. We are going to head towards a launch of a second location Um, in March time as a church. And what that will mean is that we will be one church family, but we will meet on two different locations. And uh, we are really, really excited that God has opened up a door to meet at the university. Uh, A, it's a great venue, but B, it just feels spiritually significant that God has taken us to, uh, to that particular location where those particular people are so often. And uh, we will be sharing news over the next kind of weeks and months. And just to say, this is going to be an adventure for all of us. Whether you are someone who feels called to go be part of the new location, or whether you stay to be part of this location, it's going to be an adventure for us all. Change is coming, folks. And that actually is good news for all of us, because we all get to step in, to play our part, to get involved, to take ownership of what God's calling us to do. And I'm, I'm really excited, because I believe it's going to be a catalyst for more people being introduced to Jesus. And that ultimately is why we're here on the planet, is to introduce people to Christ. And it was amazing this week, we had our our Joining King's Arms course, we had uh, around 60 of some of our newer folk from the church there at that course, and all the time we're just seeing new people being added to us, and we're just excited about what this means for us as a church family. It's going to be an exciting adventure, and one that involves every single one of us. So, more news to come, but I just wanted to update you on where we're currently at with that. So, I'm just going to pray for that location, so perhaps you want to just join with me, and let's pray. Um, Father, we we just thank you, first of all, for your faithfulness and leading us to, Lord, the right uh, second sight. And God, that we know healthy things grow. And we just thank you for our growth, Lord, over the years. Lord, I think of the first year we were in this building, we grew by 30% in one year. Lord, we just thank you. Thank you, thank you for every new person that's met you, even this year in our church family. And God, we want that to be multiplied many, many, many times over. And so, Father, we thank you that uh, taking risks of faith like this is worth it if we can introduce just one new soul to Christ. And so, Jesus, I pray bless this adventure. Bless this adventure for our church family. Lord, have your hand upon it. 
Lord, be speaking to each one of us about the part that we can play in this new season for us as a church family. Lord, we pray that the reach of the gospel would go further and wider and deeper than it ever has done before in our church. And we pray that to your glory, King Jesus. And Father, as we turn to your word today, come and do us good, come and speak to us, come and shake us up, come and comfort us, draw close to us, we pray. Lord, we just come with expectant faith to the word of God this morning, and we ask in Jesus' name, be glorified. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are in the last session on our series on the prophet Elijah. So if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn to 2 Kings and chapter 2. Now, this message comes with a health warning because I've only ever preached on this passage once before, and it was 26 years ago. 26 years ago, I preached on this passage. In fact, it was the first and only other time I've preached this message before, and I dug out the old cassette tape of me preaching it. I still have it at home. I actually nearly played it this morning, but to save my own embarrassment, I decided not to. Um, And... uh, The week after I preached that particular message, it was in a church building in America. The week after, that church building literally burnt to the ground. I mean, I kid you not, it was a wooden building and it burnt to a cinder, to a crisp. Now, I don't know if I had anything to do with that, but I'm just saying this comes with a health warning. If you hear the fire alarm, then please just make an orderly exit out the back. Um, Who knows what might happen? Um, But we are in 2 Kings chapter 2, and this really is the kind of culmination of the story of Elijah. And it's really a moment of uh, kind of the baton being passed to his younger understudy, Elisha. How many of you were here last week to hear Wendy's message on Elisha and Elijah? Great, great message. Sadly, it didn't record, I believe, but if you talk to Wendy personally, she can give you a personal preach for 35 minutes and take you through it. But it was a brilliant message looking at God's heart for leaving a legacy in the next generation. That what God has given us is not just for us to enjoy ourselves, but actually is to multiply and to pass on to the next generation. And as we come to this moment in Elijah's story, we see a, a crucial principle, which is the one we're going to focus on this morning, and it's this. And it's the principle of exponential increase. That what God does in one generation is meant to increase in the next generation. That actually, Scripture says that one generation will commend your works to the next. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. You have been brought into an ever-increasing kingdom. I think it was in 1900, one in 28 people across the world would have said that they were a Christian. That number is now one in four people on planet Earth. We live in an ever-increasing kingdom. And the idea of this story is that what God has given you is meant to multiply and increase into the next generation. And this is meant to be the norm of the Christian life. And Elijah in this story, it's this story really of his ceiling becoming the floor of Elisha. So where Elijah finishes, Elisha is not just to carry on doing the same, but actually more so. There's an increase, a promise of increase. And it's interesting in Scripture that that word generation usually refers to a, a period of time of around 30 years. 
So when scripture says one generation will commend your works to the next, it's really talking in sort of 30-year periods biblically. Now, what's interesting for us as a church is our King's Arms project is just celebrating its 30th birthday. Next year will be the 28th birthday of our church. It's a significant year for our church because we're going on this new adventure of one church but two locations. I would suggest to you that this question of how do we lead increase into the next generation is critical for our future as a church. Because God doesn't want us just to be a church that has some good memories. He wants us to be a church that creates a good future. You know, I remember the very first time I came to the King's Arms, I was 18 years old and I was in Bedford doing some training. I was about to move to America and we decided we'd go along to this crazy sounding church called the King's Arms and it met in a school hall like the Dame Alice and we heard that it had donuts at break time. Like there was a halftime break with donuts, which was very radical. So we thought we're going to this church because it already sounds good. And so we, we pitched up, and it was kind of very vibey, and I, I seem to remember smoke machines. I don't know if I've made that memory up or not, but I certainly remember colored lights at the back of the room. I, I remember there was a whole bunch of people outside that we had to walk through that were kind of chain smoking, and, you know, it felt very kind of edgy, and like, you know, something could kick off any minute, and there, there was the, the, the hallowed halftime break with donuts, which was brilliant. And then I remember sitting there as an 18-year-old and a lady called Philippa Stroud pointed directly at me and she says, a young man sitting right there, I want you to stand. And I stood and she said, and she began to prophesy over me. And she said, the word of the Lord to you is Solomon. You are going to build on your father's heritage. The glory of God is going to be pleased to inhabit that which you build. And you are going to build on your father's legacy. And it was an absolutely life-changing, game-changing moment for me. At first time I came to King's Arms. But here's the thing. God doesn't want us just to have good memories. He wants us to create a good future. Our next 30 years are meant to eclipse the previous 30 years. And that's why this passage is so critical. To ask this question, how did Elijah create an environment for exponential increase into the next generation? How did he do that? So we're going to read the story and learn some lessons. Here's the first thing. How do you create an environment for exponential increase, you've got to test your hunger. So chapter 2, verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, it's quite a way to go, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And so they went down to Bethel. This part of the story is repeated three times. Elijah goes to three different places. He goes to Bethel, he goes to Jericho, and he goes to Jordan. And each time he says the same thing to his younger understudy, Elisha. I'm going on, you stay here. And three times, Elisha's response is the same. No, 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 I'm not staying here. Where you're going, I'm going. And it's this kind of interesting uh, kind of moment, this kind of bit of a merry dance between Elijah and Elisha. No, 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 you stay, I'm going. No, 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 I'm coming with you. And that happens three times. And what we know from the story is that Elisha already knows by prophetic revelation that his master is about to go to glory. Now, he's a prophet, remember. So, you know, the old joke, two prophets meet in a bar. One prophet says to the other, you're fine, how am I? Okay, Elisha's a prophet. (laughs) He knows what's about to happen. 
He knows that his master's going to be taken away that day. I heard this brilliant story from Chris Vallotton once, who met Bob Jones for the first time, who was this crazy kind of experienced prophet. And uh, Bob Jones came up to Chris, and uh, he said, give me your number. And so Chris wrote down his number, and he said, when you're in trouble, I'll call you. (laughs) Just think about that. Not if you're in trouble, call me. When you're in trouble, I'll call you. Well, that's Elisha. (laughs) Okay, he knows what's about to happen. He knows that his master's going to glory, and so he refuses to leave Elijah's side. He says, no, no, I'm sticking with you. Where you're going, I'm going, because he knew what was on offer if he stayed with him. Here's the big question then about this moment. Why on earth did Elijah seem to want to discourage Elisha from going with him? Why the discouragement? You stay here. No, no, I'm coming with you. Why did he do that three times? Well, there could be a number of reasons, but I think very simply it was a test of hunger. It was a test of hunger. Because Elijah knew that the prophetic movement in Israel would die if the same hunger that he had had for God died with him. He understood that the momentum that he'd gained in the nation of Israel would actually die in the grave with him if someone else didn't have the same hunger for God. You understand that secondhand faith is not faith, it's learned behavior. Let me just say that again. Secondhand faith is not faith, it's learned behavior. It's possible to sit in church your whole life and actually it's just learned behavior. Elisha could have easily just tried to imitate Elijah's methods, but Elijah knew that that wouldn't do. He needed Elisha to imitate his hunger for God. He needed Elisha to have the same heart for God that he had had in his life. Therefore, he's testing Elisha, saying, you stay here. No, 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 no. I'm coming with you. If there's something on offer, then I want it. What you're carrying is what I'm hungry for as well. It was a test of hunger. And ultimately, friends, it's hunger for God that draws him onto the page of our lives. You understand that God is magnetically attracted to hunger, (laughs) He's magnetically attracted to it. And of course, one of the first signs of sickness is that you lose your appetite. It's a very important principle in Scripture. It says, first the natural, then the spiritual. In other words, so often the natural things of life point to you spiritual principles. When you're physically sick, you lose your appetite. When you are spiritually sick, you lose your appetite. And God is magnetically attracted to our hunger. That's why scripture gives these kinds of promises. Jesus says in John 7, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and rivers of living water will flow from within him. Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Scripture is full of promises about the hungry and the thirsty. Here's my question to you Are you still hungry? Are you still thirsty? And actually, when subsequent generations lose their hunger for God, then churches become monuments instead of movements. When you start leaning into someone else's faith, rather than you having your own authentic connection to God and a hunger for Him, then churches easily become monuments in just one generation. 
Isn't it sobering that Jesus comes to a church like Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? Ephesus was one of the shining lights in the early church, one of the most pioneering, influential, gospel-preaching, church-planting churches in the New Testament. And yet within 30 years, Jesus says to them, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Do the things that you did at first, or I'm going to remove the lampstand from you. Within 30 years... God is magnetically attracted to hunger. Notice that Elisha is not simply open to receiving a double portion. Simon's used this illustration many times, but you know, if your wife comes up to you and says, Oh, would you like a kiss? And you say, Yeah, I'm open. That is communicating a certain message to your wife. God doesn't respond to openness. He responds to hunger. He responds to thirst. You know, I was praying in a, in a, a field near me recently, and uh, I'm 44 years old, and I had one of those midlife moments where you start to reflect on your years that you've had so far. Anyone had done that? <laughs> thank you, thank you. Some of you are too young. You haven't got there yet. Um, and I, I was just kind of walking around, and I was, just, I was just thinking about the last 44 years, thinking, what have I achieved the last 44 years? Like, what are the things when I look back on, I think these are, the, these are the milestones that I'm proud of, or these are the significant moments in my life, and I began to think of certain ones of them. And then I suddenly had this thought, I'm 44 years old, I definitely feel wiser than I did when I was 18, but am I still as zealous? I'm definitely wiser. I definitely know a bunch of stuff that I didn't know then. But actually, how is my zeal? And Romans 12, of course, says this, that you should keep your spiritual fervor and never be lacking in zeal as you serve the Lord. And it was a provocation to me that I thought, even as I listened to that cassette tape from when I was 18 years old preaching this passage, the message was terrible, but the passion was high. The zeal was high. <laughs> I could pick holes in the message, but I tell you what, I could hear my own heart for God as an 18-year-old. So my question to you is, how is your hunger? If your wisdom and increased years equals greater passivity and less engagement, then you've been duped. That is not godly wisdom. Godly wisdom grows in the knowledge of God, but keeps its spiritual fervor. If you are less engaged in your latter years, then you've traded something inferior for what God actually is offering you. You know, Caleb gets to the end of his life. He's 85 years old, and his spiritual fervor is just as red hot as it was when he started. And he comes to Joshua, he's like, give me that hill, it's mine, and I'm having it. Have you still got that Caleb spirit in you, that hunger? The question is, how do you grow your spiritual hunger? Maybe you're here and you think, gosh, yeah, I'm actually not that spiritually hungry. Or I am hungry and I'd like to increase my appetite. Well, something very simple. Just start to exercise your spiritual muscles. You know, I've, uh, I've started to go to the gym, as you can probably all tell. And uh, I going, started going along with my son, Sam, and a few other friends from the church. And what I've noticed is that the more that you exercise, the hungrier you become. 
That's what I've noticed. The more you get into the gym, even when you don't feel like going to the gym, when you think, I need to go to the gym today, and I just want to watch Netflix and eat ice cream, but I'm going to go to the gym because I know that it's good for me. What happens when you make that decision to exercise physically is actually you grow your hunger. You know, when our son, Sam, recently moved out, and we really miss him, but I tell you, our food bill has gone right down. (laughs) You know, I don't know how many eggs he was eating each day, but... My gosh, I didn't know one person could eat quite so much dairy products, you know. But here's the thing. As he is exercising, as I am exercising, your hunger grows. Again, first in the natural, then the spiritual. How do you grow your spiritual hunger? Exercise spiritually, even when you don't feel like it. You don't pray because you feel like praying. You pray because it's the right thing to do. You don't worship because you feel like worshiping. You worship because it's the right thing to do. You don't fast because you ever feel like fasting, believe me. But you fast because it's the right thing to do. You don't share your faith just because when you get a wobbly feeling and a fluttery thing in the sky. You share your faith because it's the right thing to do. And guess what? As you exercise your spiritual muscles, your hunger for God will grow. If you live life only on your feelings... And what feels good to you, you will not grow a hunger for God. Exercise your spiritual muscles. Read the word, fast, sing, witness, share fellowship with one another, and your hunger will grow. Second thing we see in this passage, how do you create an environment of increase? You've got to rightly honor your history, rightly honor your past. This is the next part of the story. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. So the story continues. Elijah and Elisha end up by the river Jordan. And uh, there's a whole company of prophets kind of watching on. Now again, this company of prophets, they already know by divine revelation that Elijah is about to be taken away. And so they're all there watching. It was like the Netflix of their day. They're like, hmm, right, what's going to happen? It was the entertainment for that moment. And so they're waiting at the River Jordan to see what will happen. And of course, the River Jordan was an incredibly significant historical site for Israel. Here is me standing uh, just at one spot of the River Jordan last year. Almost. There we go. And uh, the River Jordan was, of course, the, the site where Joshua led the people of Israel after Moses had handed on leadership to Joshua. Joshua came to this point where they faced the River Jordan and they had to cross the Jordan to get into Jericho and the Promised Land. Just wave at me if you remember that story. And so they hit the River Jordan, and Joshua sends the Ark of the Covenant and the priests to stand in the River Jordan. And as they do, the waters part before the people of God, and they walk over the Jordan River, and then they take Jericho and get into the Promised Land. And so I think it's no accident that Elijah goes back to this site of historic victory for Israel. He stands at the site of their forefathers' faith in action. They're standing by the same waters. And it's almost as if Elijah deliberately comes to this spot as if to say, I'm honoring the history of my forefathers. The core values that they had, I am reestablishing in my generation. In the same way that Joshua stepped over the waters, I am going to believe God to do the same. And this is what we read in just verse 8. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, 
struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. I love that. Elisha would go on to repeat the same thing just a few verses later. It's almost like Elijah is saying, what Joshua did, I believe in the same God as Joshua. Elisha, watch this and do this in your generation. He is establishing a value, a right value and honor for the faith of his forefathers. And this, of course, is a dilemma for every new generation. How do you honor the best of the past without living in it? You know, so many of us can sometimes have the attitude of, if it's old, it's rubbish. No, <laughs> that's not true. We have to ask ourselves, what are the time, timeless principles that previous generations lived by that actually are good in every generation? How did they live in such a way as to prove God? In fact, Hebrews says this, Hebrews 6 verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. How do you create an environment of increase? You live by the principles that your forefathers lived by. You don't just jettison them. You don't just chuck them away. You say, how they proved God is how we are called to prove God. The principles are the same in every generation. Uh, a few weeks back, I had the privilege of speaking at a conference in Wolverhampton with one of my absolute spiritual heroes and spiritual fathers, and it's this man, Terry Virgo. And uh, I lived with Terry for a while. We're good family friends with him and his sons, his, his family, and Terry, for those of you who don't know, Terry started a church movement called New Frontiers that we are kind of part of, kind of uh, part of one of the spheres now of New Frontiers. And Terry literally started that movement with a handful of house churches in the mid-Sussex region of the United Kingdom. And many, many years later, that, that movement now spans thousands of churches in over 55 different nations. And it literally started in house churches in Sussex. And one of the things I remember living with Terry is his value for prayer. It's one of the, the legacies that he's left in my life, one of the timeless principles. I remember when I lived with Terry, I would get woken up early in the morning with the sound of him singing in tongues, praying at the end of the corridor. And it would go on for hours. I remember once kind of going out to, to church in the morning, and when I came back, he was still in his room singing in the spirit and just praying for different nations. I remember putting my ear against his door I helped, hoped he didn't know I was there. And I just listened to the people that he was praying for. I remember specifically, he was just crying out to God for pastors in India. There he was. We were living in America. He was crying out to God for breakthrough in India. I remember Terry, he would, whenever he was around the world, he would always make sure he was back for the church prayer meeting. I mean, he was literally traveling all over the world, but he would make sure he's back to pray. I remember that. I remember he was once interviewed by our local TV in Sussex because we'd been turned down for a building that we were going for unanimously by the council. And the camera went on him, and it went out on, on, on the news that day. And they said, the council's rejected your, your application. What are you going to do now? And I remember Terry says, no, no, it's ours. We've prayed. It's ours. We've prayed. And then a few months later, that unanimous decision got turned over. See, there are timeless principles in your history that you're not called to throw away, but you're called to build on. And when you boil it down, I'll suggest you that there are three timeless principles that matter in each generation. And they are the word, they are the spirit, and they are mission. 
Firstly, the timeless principle of the Word of God. Again, this is about keeping the main thing the main thing. What is it that ultimately gives you your authority and your convictions? If it is your feelings, you're in trouble. Because I don't know about you, my feelings change from one day to the next. If it's current cultural moods, again, you're in trouble. Because again, I don't know if you've noticed, cultural trends move and change very, very quickly. So what is the main thing? Is the Word of God. The Bible, Scripture, to keep the main thing, the main thing. It's what gives you your authority. And it's interesting at the moment that it seems to me that many people are throwing out this ancient path, this ancient principle of the Word of God. But what happens when you throw that principle away is you throw out your ethics, you throw out your morality, you throw out the principles that you live by. How do you decide your sexual ethic? How do you decide what to do with your money? How do you decide how to raise your family? How do you decide how to live with your neighbor? How do you decide how to forgive? How do you decide how to live, not selfishly, but with generosity? How do you decide these things? Well, it's only by the word of God. If I decided to live generously by my feelings, guess what? I would not be generous half the time. But actually, it's the word of God that gives us authority. There has to be something outside of you that sets the bar. Second timeless principle is that the spirit of God, which again gives you power and intimacy with God. Again, very easy to drift from a life of being filled with the spirit, of following the Lord, of saying, Lord, I'm hungry for your presence. I'm living to obey the words of the spirit. I'm I'm a person of the spirit. I'm a temple and dwelling place of God. So easy to move away from that. Again, I've told this story, but when I had my sabbatical last year, I went to another church, and it was kind of a come Holy Spirit, kind of pray for one another meeting. And I stepped into the meeting, and all my kind of leadership head was still on, which means that I was just noticing everything that I would either like to take or I would either like to change. And so I was standing at the back of the room, desperately trying to get into receiving mode, but I was just noticing everything. I was like, well, I wouldn't do it like that. And, oh, I'm not sure it's a great first song to start with. And oh, the temperature in the room is not very good. And oh, the coffee could have been better. You know, I'm, I'm tick, 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 tick. My, my leadership brain is just like, and I'm trying to switch it off. But I'm trying to basically think, how could I improve this meeting if I was in charge? <laughs> and then the man who was leading the meeting stepped up to the microphone and just said, come Holy Spirit. And just the presence of God filled that room. And instantly, the Lord said to me this. He said, Phil, excellence is a poor substitute for anointing. (sighs) I had a revelation in that moment. (laughs) Excellence is a poor substitute for anointing. Even you on your very best day, me on my very best day, cannot trump God even on his very worst day. (laughs) Anointing is God doing what you can't. And so we're called to be people of the Spirit. This is a core value. And then the third value is the mission of God, which gives you your purpose and meaning. Why are you alive? To make much of God in your generation. To share the goodness of God, the love of God. And again, can I just suggest that we should not just have a purely social gospel. 
A social gospel is this. Well, as long as we do good to people, then we don't really need to talk about Jesus much as long as we're doing good. No, 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 no. They go hand in hand. Word and deed go together. Yes, do good to as many people as you can, but also put the name of Jesus on your lips. Because our mission is to make disciples of Christ. And so many church movements through history have cut themselves adrift because they've cut them off, themselves off from these three core principles. Word, spirit, and mission. I was reading the sad story about SCM, the Student Christian Mission, which started in the early 20th century as a radical, radical Christian movement to reach students on universities in this nation to send them all over the world. And by the year 1920, they literally sent thousands and thousands of radical pioneering church planters and missionaries all over the world. They were like the hottest thing on the block, radically sold out. This was their motto, world evangelization in one generation. That was their motto, the student Christian movement, world evangelization in one generation. They were white hot. And yet, sadly, what happened in their history is they began to jettison their passion for the word, for the spirit, and for mission. And slowly, they began to accommodate their message to the culture around them. Their message began to sound quite a lot like the culture that they were trying to reach. So, for example, by the year 1960, SCM had adopted a death of God theology within 60 years. By the year 2001, SCM had almost completely disappeared from university campuses, and their old motto of world evangelization had been replaced by this, questioning the Christian faith. How does that happen? You stop living by the word, you stop living by the spirit, and you stop living for the mission of God. You lose your authority, you lose your power, and you lose your purpose. And it's happened time and time and time again with some of the most radical Christian movements on our planet. Please, Lord, do not let it happen to us. Praise God for the last 30 years. The question is, how are we going to write the next 30 years? You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. It's simple. Read the Bible and obey what it says. Be filled with the Spirit. Enjoy God and know the power that he gives you for life. And thirdly, go and make disciples. Simple. (laughs) That's it. Keep the main thing the main thing. And we do that as we honor our history. Here's the thing. If we keep the main thing the main thing, God will keep giving the increase. He'll keep giving the increase. Next, and we're kind of rushing on these last two points Third thing we see is that identity enables inheritance. Verse 9, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before you are taken, I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. So rather than get taken into the next life in the usual way, Elijah doesn't actually die, but God sends him a flaming chariot. That's a great way to go, isn't it? 
I mean, that's a great way to go. I'm dreaming of maybe a flaming Porsche or a flaming Bugatti or a Harley Davidson. I don't know, something like that. But, but for Elijah, it was this flaming chariot, this whirlwind that took him up to glory. But again, we're asking this question, how do you create a culture of increase between the generations? Well, the next key is this, identity enables inheritance. There are two different theories about why Elisha asked for a double portion. There are two things that could mean. Number one, double portion was the language of inheritance. So in Jewish custom, the firstborn son in a Jewish family received two-thirds of the father's estate. He literally received double, a double portion. What was left was distributed to the rest of the kids. But the firstborn son got two-thirds of the father's estate. And the likelihood here is that Elisha is understanding, I am my spiritual father's son, give me a double portion. He's got all the other prophets watching, and it's like Elisha is saying, I am your spiritual son more than these guys, give me a double portion. In other words, he understands who he is. He understands he's his father's favorite. And that's why he can ask for so much. I'm a, I'm a daddy's favorite. Give me a double portion. That's, that's one theory. The second theory is that double portion literally was Elisha asking for twice as much blessing as Elijah had known in his life. Now, interestingly, even when you record the miracles between Elijah and Elisha, Elijah saw 14 miracles. Elisha saw 28, literally double. That's just an interesting coincidence, isn't it? So which one of these is? Is it? Well, I would suggest to you it's probably both of these. I think it was inheritance as a spiritual son, but I think it was also him saying, just give me more. <laughs> give me more, Father. Give me more of what you've carried. Let it be multiplied. Let it be doubled in my life. But whatever the case, his identity enabled him to ask with boldness. Friends, are you asking God for much? Are you asking him? Jesus said, listen, even good fathers give good gifts to their children when they ask. How much more will your heavenly father give the spirit to those that ask? How do you ask for much? You understand who you are. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I have heavenly fridge rights. I have access to the father and I'm coming to ask for more. The question is, are you? Are you asking for the increase of his kingdom? That's what we see here. You are your father's favorite. Just nudge someone and say, you're God's favorite. You're God's favorite. All right, last bit of the story. Verse 13. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Elisha rightly honors his history, but he steps into his own mantle. He begins to write his own story. How do you write your own story in your generation? It, two things. Father, what are you saying? And what can I do about it? That's how you write history. It was Winston Churchill who said, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. <laughs> now, he actually, he caught on to something there. But you understand that history is not just written for you, but it's written with you. Let me just say that again. History is not just written for you, it's written with you. Because you are co-heirs, you are partners with God. 
So for example, in Scripture, Jesus says to his disciples, go to the upper room where you'll be clothed with power from on high. The disciples had to do something with that instruction. They went to the upper room and they were clothed with power from on high. When God's sovereignty meets our responsibility, the rest is history. (laughs) That's how it works. God speaks, we respond, we start to write history in advance. The question is, what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? And I tell you, if we keep asking that question and keep responding to God, we will write a better 30-year history in the future than ever we've had in the past. God is bringing us to a line in the sand, friends. My question is, how is your hunger? Test it. Are you doing the, the main things? Are you honoring your history of your forefathers? Do you understand who you are so that you can ask for much? And are you responding to the things that God is saying to you? If we do those things, I tell you what, our future is very bright. And we will become a movement, not a monument. And that is my prayer for us as a church.